I like Nickelback, <laughs> Gordon. I like it. It's Friday, March 9th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and Uber Resistance Leader, and with me today are contributing editors at Dutch News, Gordon Derrick, who is also a Dutch art lover, and Molly Quell, the second loudest American in Delft. As an American, I want to be the best at this, so I feel the need to be exceptionally loud yeah. on today's podcast. But who's knocked you off your pedestal? I was waiting in my uh, for in the Starbucks in Delft for my boyfriend to come back from work and there was like some I I think he was American he was definitely speaking with an American accent but he was clearly like intoxicated or otherwise had imbibed in some sort of yeah substance and was sort of haranguing and being kind of an, an asshole in the Starbucks and had ordered a coffee and so he had put it down on the the counter and looked at the barista behind the counter who was like, no, don't do it. And then like a cat basically just like swiped the fucking coffee mug right off, which shattered <laughs> onto the floor and spilled everywhere. That but they... at first he moved it a little, then yeah. looked back. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like... It was like really this like moment yeah. of engagement. He was like, I'm going to do it. And she was like, don't do it. And he was like, I'm going to do it. And she was like, don't do it. And then he like swiped it right off the counter. Yeah. And then he was escorted out by the police. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, they, they brought the police in for mm-hmm. it. And so, Gordon, you went to go see the uh, the uh, Vermeer painting exhibition at the Moritz House that we talked about last week, right? Uh, the, uh, well, yes, so they're, they're doing some um, exploratory or investigative work on the uh, girl with the pearl earring. And you go in and they, they, they've taken it into a side gallery, well, into one of the galleries and set up a sort of, like a laboratory, really, behind big glass screens. And you just see them working away at it. And, you know, you don't, you know, you, and there's a little explanatory panel. It's quite interesting. And they're trying to sort of investigate exactly things to do with, I think, off the top of my head, um, what... Um, uh, uh, they're trying to investigate Vermeer's painting techniques and yeah. what kind and of materials he used. And how the paint aged. How the paint ages yeah. as well, that's right, yes. Because yeah. uh, obviously it's three centuries old. Paul, you were out starting riots this week, I heard. There were yeah. Molotov cocktails involved. That's true. I had some uh, fireworks left over from uh, last New Year's Eve and I thought, well, let's... Uh, stormed the Uber headquarters in, mm. uh, in Amsterdam. You're going to have to explain this uh, this story yes. to our readers. Yeah, we will have a story about this uh, so later we'll, on we'll in the podcast. So we'll explain more of this later. Yeah. Stay, Stay tuned. tuned. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there was also some problems with the uh, with the alarm that, uh, that, that goes off every first Monday of the... This of the... alarm, like, legitly terrifies me every time it goes off. <laughs> I think the, the, it's the, because... The, these are the air raid sirens, yeah, right? They the test on the first Monday of every month. They test on the first Monday yeah. of the month. But I think it's because I lived in D.C. during 9-11 and also, like, lived in Belfast during, like, a a terrorist attack there also. And so, like, I hear the air raid sirens going off and I was like, the Germans are invading every single month. I've lived here for (laughs) six years and I'm still concerned by this. It can also be the Belgians. It could be the Belgians. But could could they get here? Because the roads are, like, really crap. Well, yeah. the roads in the Netherlands are pretty pretty good. So yeah. it, once they get whenever, to the border, but they yeah, have to get to the yeah. border. I mean, that's a challenge. Uh, okay, yeah, that's yeah. a challenge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it definitely couldn't be the British because you know, they, they, they can't organize anything. No, as we can see from the but Brexit the, negotiations. But the thing is, uh, there were some places in the Netherlands where it didn't go off. Right. So this testing makes sense. Yeah. I so guess. and what happened? Did they know? Was Sorry. it not something to do with the fire brigade? I read the fire brigade forgot to set it to go off because they were busy with uh, clearing up an accident scene. Oh, oh, that's, that's what I heard. Have, um, there you yeah. go. Some insider information. 
exclusive uh, news here that I, I read on the internet somewhere. <laughs> well, well, we'll link to more about the story in the liner notes, and if, and if there's updates, we'll, we'll be sure to bring them to our listeners next week. This week, we'll update you on the return of the most boring man in Dutch politics, how a car returned to land after it went for a swim in the Waddensee, and why three refugee women claimed they cannot return to their country of origin. In the second part of our series on referendums, we'll be discussing everything you need to know about the upcoming referendum on the Big Brother law. Stef Bloch, arguably the most boring man in Dutch politics, will become the new foreign affairs minister, replacing Halbe Selstra, who resigned last month after making up a meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin in his Dasha. During the first Rutte cabinet, Bloch was the VVD party leader in the Tweede Kamer, and in Rutte's second cabinet he served as housing minister for five years. Stef Bloch was also the man who took over the Ministry of Justice and Safety after Art van der Steur was the second VVD minister, who had to resign following the notorious... Molly. Bonnage's affair. Yes. I love L references to the Bonnage's affair. Yeah. Uh, Gordon, uh, can you repeat how you described Steph Block? Because it was very, very colorful. Steph, uh, Steph, concrete block. He's like, he's a concrete block. He's gray, he's solid, he's dependable, he's he's featureless, and you can use him for just about anything. I described him as the Brojakas of uh, Dutch politics, (laughs) I think, on Twitter this week. So he's got a a lot going on right away, Paul, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, As part of the Netherlands' uh, six month membership of the UN Security Council, Steph Block will be the man who is uh, responsible for chairing the Security Council, uh, where, where he will have to deal with uh, Russia, with whom the Netherlands had a number of diplomatic problems uh, recently. And in Europe, he will have to find a way to, to tackle uh, Germany's and France's uh, tendency and wish to, uh, for a federalization of the European Union. Yeah, so do you think he's the right uh, man for the job? Well, as you said, uh, you, you, you can use him for basically anything. Yeah. Uh, he's not a man that causes any problems, uh, uh, rather he resolves them. He took over the Justice Ministry uh, after years of chaos and misgovernance, and uh, after he took over there was literally no single scandal. There probably was, but people just stopped paying attention because Steph Block mm. was in charge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, yeah, he, he just bored people into submission. Yeah, what did you say? Yeah. He could bore a volcano into He could bore a volcano into submission. Yeah, I thought he was a perfect man to take the heat out of the uh, um, the tension between Trump and North Korea. Yeah. Because, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, w- he would do well, I think. Yeah, he would just stand in between them and they would just both <laughs> fall asleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, given that the coalition is still uh, pretty fragile uh, with four parties and the smallest possible majority in the Tweede Kamer, uh, Margrethe cannot afford any more troubles uh, with ministers, especially the ones from his own party. Um, and the Prime Minister describes Block as someone who knows how the Hague works, a person with a small ego who approaches MPs rather than receiving them at the ministry. Um, however, he doesn't have any uh, experience in foreign affairs, just like Halbe Selstra, uh, and that was the main c- uh, criticism of Halbe Selstra when he, his appointment was announced. Mm. So it's yeah. interesting that uh, nobody is criticizing Steph Block for this. Well, now. I think, I mean, there's some expectations, right, because the second in command there, uh, the, oh, she's, who's de Sessa, from the Deus Sestag, mm. is extremely knowledgeable about a lot of this and has a lot of foreign exper- affairs experience. So it seems to me like maybe it's a good duo. Let him sort of bore the scandals to death and she can get the real work done. Yeah, so Steph Block is a guy who will keep all his bonnets. The, there is yeah, no yeah, question yeah, of yeah, Steph Block ever losing a bonnet. He never loses a bonnet. No. No. And uh, I also read a, a portrait in the Volkskrant about Steph Block, and the first line of that portrait was, uh, 
it's amazing that we were, are able to write a portrait about him because there's literally nothing interesting. <laughs> there's nothing about yeah. to say. Yeah, yeah, he always remembers to send his mother a birthday card. Like he's always nice to his wife. He's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He goes to sleep early. He wakes up early. Yeah. It's, he eats a balanced diet. He never splurges. He never has too many glasses of wine with dinner. Mm. Yeah. And what do you think he uh, drinks for lunch every day? A brojakas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. definitely has. Or maybe bojapindakas if he's yeah. really pushing the bojakas. <laughs> yeah. 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 And yeah. I think uh, cardamel definitely. Definitely. Absolutely. He's definitely cardamel oh, yeah. man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no question. Yeah. If he splurges, he maybe puts some haga slog on his pindakas sandwich, and that's about like <laughs> no, the no, craziest no, 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 that he gets. No, no, he, he no, would he never do that on his birthday. I that's bet way he does. too outlandish. I bet he does on his birthday. No, on his birthday he gets uh, pannekoeken with speck. Ah, oh, with yeah. speck. Yeah, like with speck and, and apple, maybe. No. Maybe for no, like his fortieth no. birthday, he did. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really Only for on a special really special occasions. Exactly. Yeah. Steph Block, if you're listening, if you stop North Korea and America from going to war with each other, you should get whatever toppings we'll, we'll, you we'll, want we'll, on your we'll, panakuka. We, we will bake you we'll, your we'll panakuka. Yeah. <laughs> we, we will fund all of the toppings on the panakuka. That's fine. With two weeks to go until the local elections, right-wing party leaders Thierry Baudet and Geert Wilders have pulled out of a radio debate being held on the eve of the vote by state broadcaster NOS. Wilders claimed he didn't take part in what he called NOS radio nonsense, even though one of his MPs was at the draw where the broadcaster decided the order of the speakers will appear in. Last year, Wilders also withdrew from several debates in the run-up to last year's parliamentary election, which possibly coincided with his um, falling poll ratings. Baudet, meanwhile, is boycotting the event in protest at D66 party leader Alexander Pechtold, who Baudet says is out to, quote, demonise him and his party. This comes after Pechtold's colleague and Home Affairs Minister Kaiser Olentren criticised Baudet for not condemning a candidate from his Forum for Democracy party who suggested people from non-white races had lower IQs. Yeah, so w- do we have speculation as to like what their actual motivations are for pulling out of these two uh, radio debates? Well, with Wilders, it's kind of, it's a sort of pattern of yeah. behaviour. He just seems to pull out of debates as elections get nearer, no. um, especially if he's not getting the attention or the poll ratings aren't going his way. Yeah, he, he, I think he's just quite controlling in where he does and doesn't appear. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a way to, uh, to generate some publicity without doing actually something, yeah. so he doesn't have to go to debate. And That's true. It's true. You get a free headline, don't you, yeah. for the fact that you've pulled out of a debate yeah. and then you generate more op-hef around the yeah. debate uh, by not participating in it than you would do probably if you're in the debate and you actually had to argue the substance of your um, of your campaign. Yeah, and I read some journalists who is, uh, uh, th- that talked about journalists that are now trying to set up a debate between the, uh, the parties that do not want to debate each other, even though that never happened. So mm-hmm. I don't know if, if they're really trying to do something like that. Um, yeah, but it, it, it generates a free headline and some publicity without doing anything. So, yeah, it's a win-win situation. Yeah, and I guess they're both representing sort of anti-establishment blocks yeah, or parties. So, can, so, like, not yeah. participating in, like, the normal bits of politics yeah. probably plays well to their base. Exactly. It sends a signal out, doesn't it, that you're you're not doing the establishment's bidding. Yeah. I'm surprised that uh, Baudet said that Pechtold scared him off. It seems like a little... Uh, little yeah, it's the first time ever anyone would have been scared off by I know, exactly. Pechtold, surely. So, Gordon, um, Baudet filed this police complaint against Olin Krong for those, like, remarks that she had made. So what's mm-hmm. the resolution of this? Do we know? Uh, yes, he he, he um, went down to the police station one Sunday, was it two, three weeks ago, anyway, um, and uh, did a photo call and uh, had a big, um, again, had had some free headlines for it. He wanted the police to investigate um, um, the remarks on the grounds that they were defamatory. Um, and But on Thursday, the Public Prosecution Service came out with a statement saying it's not going to press charges. Um, they've decided the comments didn't meet the criteria 
for slander because they didn't contain any outright untruths and they were made in the context of a public debate. So that's the end of that, really. Alonkhan did challenge uh, Bode to debate the issue in Parliament, but uh, he doesn't spend much of his time there, really. So yeah, that and, was unlikely to... And he's too fruit. afraid to uh, debate Pechtold, so I can't imagine he's going to debate Olenkron. Mm. A plot by angry Amsterdam taxi drivers to storm the headquarters of Uber with Molotov cocktails, bricks, and fireworks is under investigation by the police. According to Algemeen Dachblad, the plot was planned in a 300-member chat group called Vechmet Uber, or Away with Uber, the taxi drivers are angry with unfair competition by Uber's online service. Some of the group members were Uber drivers who are unhappy with the company taking 25% of their fares. Amsterdam police have said that they are aware of the messages and are investigating them for possible criminal offenses, including incitement to trespass on another's property. Of course, that's a law against the law here in the Netherlands. <laughs> Throwing Molotov cocktails apparently isn't. Yeah, right? No. <laughs> it's, just, it's, just, it's just trespassing yeah. that you're yeah. going to get in trouble for. Yeah, but, but, but they'll probably get done, actually, just for setting off fireworks uh, outside of the um, uh, officially approved times. You no, know? what they're yeah, going to... If they wait until four o'clock on uh, New Year's Eve, it would be fine. No, what they're going to get in trouble for is expensing the Molotov cocktails as yeah. a business expense and yes. not keeping a proper Not keeping a proper receipt, <laughs> yeah. So Uber has said they're working closely with the police and uh, will start talks with the drivers to uh, address their concerns. So, uh, Paul... What have you been up to lately? <laughs> <laughs> you've been very quiet this yeah, week. Yeah, you've true. been very yeah. quiet this week. I wasn't quiet. Yeah, I was quiet with you, but <laughs> I wasn't quiet in this uh, group chat called Weg met Uber. Yeah. yeah. No, uh, I have nothing to do with this. No. Obviously. No. Yeah. So, but do you think that they uh, they have, I mean, obviously, just standard uh, disclaimer, nobody thinks that addressing your concerns with Molotov cocktails is the way to go, but do you think that the taxi drivers have uh, some complaints or that their complaints are valid? Uh, no, I don't think so. Why not? Uh, they're unhappy with Uber, but uh, you have to see it like this. Um, in the past, a taxi driver in Amsterdam would uh, uh, stand in line at, this, at the station waiting for a passenger to step in and then he could drive off. Now with Uber, you can drive all around town and uh, Uber is a tool that connects a passenger with a taxi driver. So you can drive around town basically everywhere and you can pick up your passengers. So that seems like a win-win situation for me. Did yeah. so? Did taxi drivers in Amsterdam not have radios in the park? Yeah, but they weren't. They did, they're not allowed to pick. Pe- they weren't allowed to pick people. Oh, up in there's the streets, a rule. They weren't right? allowed to pick people up. You couldn't like. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you could call them, but yeah, right. uh, most uh, taxi drivers in Amsterdam are is a one-person company. So uh, yeah, if you need you a taxi, call? who are you going to call? Mm. So at Uber, it seems like a perfect tool to get some work. Yeah. Otherwise, you're waiting in line, uh, wasting your time. So I don't understand why people are not on a, not using it. And if they're not using it, I understand that they're unhappy with it. But mm. then just go start using it. Yeah. All right. Well, there's our uh, taxi driver hot takes for the week. Three refugee women from Somalia and Afghanistan appeared before the Supreme Court, who claimed they are too westernized to return to their countries of origin on Thursday. They claimed that being sent back would put their lives in danger because they no longer comply with standards of female behavior considered acceptable there. The lawyer compares this to gays and people with unaccepted religions who are sometimes granted asylum because they would be in considerable personal danger if sent back home. The Council of State will have to determine now if westernized women fall under this group. It usually takes them six weeks to give a ruling, but the case can also be referred to the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg. 
This is a really interesting, like, mm. I think... It's an interesting argument, concept. isn't it? Yeah. yeah, you become so well-integrated. And I wonder what the uh, kind of racist take is on this. You know, right. if, if you say that... Um, if your argument is that um, refugees should integrate or go home, and there, here's some refugees saying, we have integrated so well that we can't go home anymore. Yeah. Are you then going to say to these people, you need to go home because you're a foreigner? Or do you say, okay, you should stay? Yeah. <laughs> well, and, like, I, I guess also there's, I think, a, a sort of interesting question that if they accept this argument, I mean, how integrated do you have to be in order for that to be like a problem because I, I I see the point that that a lot of these women have I mean women are often treated very very poorly in in these places where they're coming from you know if you're going to use this as a, as a legal criteria for immigration like how do you draw the line do you have to be a woman who's like no longer willing to wear the headscarf like do you have to be someone who's had sex before marriage like you know where exactly and then you know you sort of get into this question about how you prove this which yeah, we discussed it echoes the whole argument about uh, yeah people who um, say that uh, they should be granted asylum on the graces that they're gay and the courts in the past have had to sort of say you have to prove you're gay you have right. to prove you're in a gay relationship yeah so you how know? do you sort of prove this <laughs> exactly. I mean I guess like have have some have some homosexual sex in, in the courtroom in front of the judge <laughs> yeah. maybe with the judge with perhaps. the judge yeah. maybe yeah. so that that I think is the question like if we, how exactly are they going to decide what is to uh, you know where do you kind of like draw the line on this so you think you've had parking problems before one 19-year-old managed to park his car in the middle of the Vadensee. On his way to Groningen with some friends, Stan decided to make a stopover in Friesland and drive across the sea during low tide, which is actually illegal. But his car became stuck in the mud, and he left it there. During high tide, the car became completely engulfed in water. Clever boy. Yes. Um, and uh, is Stan getting his car back? He will. The <laughs> Rijkswaterstaat will rescue it, but he has to pay for the uh, salvage. Stan says he's very apologetic. Yeah, because he doesn't have a car anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and what's even worse, apparently, is that he's been trying to sell this car, which, of course, like he will now not be able to do. <laughs> After he parked it in Wadense? No, but he, before oh. he parked oh, okay. it in the Wadense, he'd been trying to sell it, and now I, I suspect <laughs> that that's, that's not going to be Nobody an option. Is. Yeah. Well, it could, uh, well, it, if it, you're living in the north of the country and some dude named Stan is trying to sell a car, you yeah. should really look into whether or not it has water damage. Well, I yeah. think it's now a museum piece. Yeah, it's too bad they don't have like a car exhibition with a yeah. backstory. Yeah. Right? No, yeah. Today's hot tip is uh, if, if you're driving in the north of the Netherlands, use roads. Right, yeah, yeah. A- actual yeah. roads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is not Belgium. Um, but the Rijkswaterstaat was really unhappy with yeah, this. They because, were yeah, they pissed. Yeah, because the Wadersee is a protected... Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was a long way out as well. Yeah. I mean, you're going to have a hell of a job getting it back. And yeah, at high tide, it's, like you said, it's completely submerged. Yeah, yeah and they so were saying there's like a lot of concerns about like oil and, and stuff leaking from the car and mm. it being damaging to the environment and animals that are living there. Yeah, so. because yeah. the water is on the UNESCO World Heritage List. Yeah. So, yeah. No, do, do you think you could get an Uber? Maybe his app just told him to go there. Yeah. He's, he's saying, pick somebody up from Scam on a He was using Apple Maps yeah. instead of Google Maps, and that's how he ended up in yeah. the middle of the ones there. Following the success of the speed skaters at the Winter Olympics, this week it was the turn of Dutch cyclists to strike gold at the World Indoor Track Championships. Kirsten Vilt was the star of the show. The 35-year-old from Svola won three titles in the Scratch, the Omnium and the Points Race, which are all names of races. Um, <laughs> the team sprinters set the wheels in motion by winning their event on Saturday, while Jeffrey Hochland overcame breathing problems earlier in the week to win the one's one-kilometre time trial. His teammate Theo Bos took bronze, while in the men's points race, Jan Willem van Schip won a surprise silver medal and confessed afterwards that he was, quote, very tired. I think, apart from ice skating... Uh Indoor cycling is the most boring. Indoor cycling is the step block of sport. <laughs> After speed skating, possibly a long track, ten kilometers no, speed I, skating. I, thi- I think. Uh, At least with the cyclists, cyclists. cycling is, is is even even worse. Do they ever crash the cyclists? 
Because that would make it no, kind of not indoor, indoor yeah. like that no. often. And then it's really not interesting. Yeah, it's like um, worse than NASCAR. Yeah, but it is basically you made yeah. you made sports out of your two most uh, two favorite ways of getting to work in the morning. Yeah, you know, skating that's and true. Cycling. The only so two ways to clever. get to work in the morning yeah. around this place. Yeah, and uh, also Wesley Schneider has retired. <laughs> yes, Wesley Schneider, who's uh, has the record number of international caps for the Dutch national football team, uh, 133. He's pulled on the orange jersey for the last time, apparently, because the new national team coach, Ronald Koeman, went to see him in Qatar, where he's now playing these days. They were just sick of making all these extra small shirts. Yeah, probably. Yeah, because he is very small in Wesley Schneider by Dutch standards. But yeah, Ronald Koeman went to see him in Qatar and uh, he came out of the meeting and said uh, he wanted to pick um, uh, more younger players. Ronald Koeman went to generation. Qatar for this? Yeah, he went, he, went to, he, yeah, he went to visit Snyder in Qatar. Yeah. Just to say we don't want Just you to say anymore. you're not playing you're anymore. Fired. Yeah, you're fired. <laughs> 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 it's like a kind of Donald Trump moment. Isn't it? Yeah. No, I think it was kind of a bit of... He felt like he had to do yeah, um, go the extra Pay mile. Some respect, yeah. Pay some respect. Be a bit <laughs> respectful. Good to, to yeah, go the extra mile. Yeah, yeah. It was respectful to a guy who's played for 15 years um, and uh, yeah, um, uh, played in the World Cup final and captained another World Cup team. That's the end of Snyder's career, but started when he was a teenager in 2003 against Portugal. Um, he really made his name in the Euro 2004 playoff match against Scotland. Oh. Where he scored the first goal as the Dutch won six nil over against, over against, Tanio. against what, what against country with that? So what, Scotland who beat the Netherlands one nil in the first leg, but then lost the second game six nil. Six nil. Okay. Yeah. Um, against Scotland, right? That's what you said. Against, yeah, that's against Just that's Scotland. Yeah. So this is the last time that Scotland had even a sniff of a chance. <laughs> the favorite museum exhibition of Paul and I is getting a new piece: the roasted legs of a heron. The bird was being roasted over an open fire by a homeless man who was later charged with making a fire in a place where fire was banned and not carrying an ID. He denied... <laughs> Did he have a bonnetchef for his... Uh, he his had heron. a bonnetchef yeah. for the heron, yeah. so it was fine. Uh, that was fine. He denied killing the bird, said the bird was dead when he found it. This story uh, caused some whole puff in the Netherlands because herons are a protected species. It's not legal to kill them. Yeah, and what is this uh, 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 animal exhibition you talked about? So the animal exhibition is the uh, Doda Dira Meden Verhal, so mm. dead animals with a backstory and basically it's a it's an exhibition in the uh, Natural History Museum in Rotterdam where they collect the bodies of dead animals with a backstory and could you give some examples of the of course animals? I can it includes the Domino's Mus the uh, the, the sparrow that, yes. that brought down the, the Domino's uh, setting up competition in, in the Netherlands it includes the marmot that uh, chewed through an electrical wire at, at CERN and, and crashed the Large Hydron Collider for a week um, the, the Tweede Kamer Mouse Tweede Kamer Mouse is there there was a, a mice infestation in the Tweede and the mouse was frightening all of the uh, MPs. The uh, McFlurry hedgehog. Yeah, a hedgehog that got its head stuck in a McFlurry container. That's kind of like a sad story. It mm-hmm. also contains everyone's most favorite animal. The first example, uh, it's witnessed in nature of homosexual necrophilia in ducks, and it includes the <laughs> dead body of the duck. And the second, uh, second one. Exactly. Yes. So, uh, yeah, which is the, the animal that sort of kicked this exhibition off. The exhibition is really cool. You should go check it out at the, at the Rotterdam Museum. And now it will uh, include this heron. Nice. Yeah, and, and why won't the whole bird uh, be on display? <laughs> well, only the legs were left by the time the police got there, basically. Uh, so so the man had had all the choice cuts. Yeah, he had, yeah. he'd eaten the good stuff. It yeah. was just the legs that were left. Left, yeah. yeah. And uh, what other news has there been about animals with stupid names? Gordon. <laughs> Gordon. Another Gordon, this time a pig of the literal variety. <laughs> what are you trying to say? <laughs> 
is looking for a new home. The owner of the pig made an announcement saying that she's searching for a new home for the house pig, who is somewhat famous in his hometown of Arnhem. And what's he famous for? He, uh, famous for being uh, a really adorable little pig. Right. Um, but apparently his uh, his owner can no longer take care of him. Her relationship has ended, and I guess he's he's a bit too much of a handful for uh, for just her by herself. You can visit the website of Hobby Varken Vereniging, where the pig has been listed for adoption. We will uh, be discussing the referendum on the Big Brother law after these words from our sponsors. Do you drive or ride a bike? Are you in the train or on the train? If you're producing text in English but aren't sure of just the right wording, M Squared can help you. M Squared is a digital publications company that can help you with all of your writing, editing and translation needs. They have a combined 20 years experience crafting the perfect document from editing books to writing website copy. If you need help with your website text, brochure, thesis, press release and more, contact them at info at msqrd.com. If you are interested in reaching an international audience with your product or service, you can email to podcast at dutchnews.nl for our competitive advertising rates. In the second part of our series on referendums, we will now discuss the upcoming referendum on the tapping law, often nicknamed the slave red. Voting will take place on March 21st, the same day as the municipality elections. It's the second uh, referendum, and following the scrapping of the referendum law, it will possibly be the last referendum in the Netherlands. First of all, what is this referendum about? So, the referendum is about this new law that went into effect in the beginning of the year, Well, right? it's supposed to, supposed but to, they've postponed it till yeah. the 1st of May because they have problems uh, finding uh, people to sit on the um, commission right. uh, that uh, is supposed to uh, vet applications. But it expands the powers of the Dutch intelligence and security services. The law deals with the terms and conditions under which the IVD and the military MAVD may use special powers such as tapping fiber optic cables. Yeah, and the fiber optic cables is um, the particularly key thing, isn't it? So the current law gives you very restrictive powers. You can only really um, tap one person or one individual person. What they want to do is spread it out so that they can actually tap the internet traffic of a, like a whole area of a whole street or one yeah. service provider and then just sort of sift out all the stuff that's not relevant. Yeah, so basically yeah. the current law is outdated. It dates back from uh, 2002 and in light of the current uh, internet and smart smartphone era, the government says they, they need a, uh, an update of this yeah. law. But it's already, the implementation of this, even unrelated to the referendum, has already been postponed, right? Yeah. And it's been postponed because they can't uh, they can't find people to serve on this like special committee. What is the deal with the special committee? So there's a committee that's, if the IFAD want to tap uh, your internet traffic, they've actually got to make an application. And there's a committee being set up which has to assess all these applications. And um, yeah, they're, they're still looking for candidates for this. But there's going to be three people who've got judicial experience or experience of the technology. And they're chosen by the National Ombudsman the Vice President of the Council of State and the President of the Supreme Court. So all applications to tap internet traffic or data or phone conversations will come before them. They'll have to make sure that, that it is properly targeted for one thing. So you can't just say, you know, I want to look at all the internet traffic in Delft because there might be a few people there you know, contacting Syria. You've actually got to have due cause or a well-founded suspicion that you're actually going to find something. You can't just go on a fishing expedition. But it is called a slate vet because slate vet meaning dragnet or trawler net because they'll be able to um, collect up much greater volumes of data and then simply sort of cast off any um, information that, that isn't relevant to their investigation. 
So how did this uh, referendum come about? Because this referendum, is, yeah. as we discussed last <clears throat> week, if our listeners are unfamiliar with the referendum system, should go back and listen to our discussion from last <laughs> week. Yeah, it's basi- all about referendums. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically if a law passes, then civilians can uh, ask for a referendum and you have to collect a certain amount of uh, signatures. And in this case, five students from Amsterdam uh, organized a referendum. Uh, they believe this law does not belong in an open and democratic uh, society. Uh, and they got some support, for example, by Amnesty International, and they called uh, the new law a violation of human rights. Uh, Schakblok Geenstel also supports the referendum, and they uh, they dubbed this the Stasi uh, Sleepwet. Mm. Bits of Freedom, uh, another organization, and the Dutch Association for Journalists also fear, for example, that uh, source protection is in danger. Yeah, because certainly with the um, journalists' union, their point is that any communication between, say, criminal suspects and their lawyers is protected. So if that kind of information is ever acquired, they have to immediately get rid of it because it's um, protected communications. But communications between, say, investigative journalists and people at their, their sources that they're talking to who are often confidential uh, is not protected by this so they can keep that data yeah. and that's a, that, that impinges on investigative journalism because people won't trust or n- they won't feel able to trust journalists so they know that their phone traffic is being hacked by the security services yeah so as paul mentioned at the beginning this uh the voting on the referendum takes place on the 21st, 21st of march yeah. um, which is the same day as of course uh, local elections are held but you can't vote in this unless you're a dutch citizen so you can vote i mean i mm. can vote in national elections or in local elections and Gordon can vote in local elections also but you will not get a referendum ballot so you have to be a Dutch uh, citizen you have to be a Dutch citizen so quite a few of our listeners will not be participating but for those who are or can what do we think do do you have a thought on how you're going to vote Paul or maybe how you guys how you would vote Gordon if you could Well, I'm not particularly happy with this law. I recognize the need for updating this this outdated law from 2002. But I'm happy with this committee that's overseeing this. I mean, they they seem to be like uh, they're going to be in constant contact with the intelligence services. And I think it's a a good protection tool, Mm. I guess, for human rights. But the problem is this committee only... Um, there's no public scrutiny. There's always a problem with these things, and it, it, where's the accountability? But because these applications are being made by the security services, who obviously work in the secret, and then the, the applications are made in the secret, well, how much will the committee have the ability to actually scrutinise what comes before them, what information the, the security services are putting to them? You know, will they be actually able to make an informed decision? I think experience in other countries where they've had this is that the committee just becomes a rubber stamp. You know, they're there just to prove everything because they actually can't see the evidence that might form the basis of an objection. Yeah, this is they have this uh, system in the U.S. called the FISA court, which I don't remember what the acronym actually stands for, yeah. but it's it's a very similar thing where you can get sort of warrants to do these sort of secret security service things, and uh, it, it has to do with like getting uh, permission to do like wiretapping and stuff in places where you probably wouldn't be able to get permission through like the normal judicial process, or it's like a matter of national security, and they've done some studies on this, and journalists have gotten some information about it, and they've sort of discovered that these courts just kind of like rubber stamp, yeah. right? That they're, they're just like always... saying, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it makes you sort of wonder whether or not it's like really a valid kind yeah. of like Will it really be a committee this? with teeth that has yeah. the power and the strength to say no? And the problem is we don't know this. Right. Yeah, we don't know this. And the only point where it ever becomes public is if there is another vetting procedure after the application has been, been made by, by another organisation, the 
CETFAD, which I've forgotten what that stands for. Yeah. They are then accountable to Parliament, um, and their investigation is uh, done publicly. But the findings, their, their decision is then, again, made to the IFAD in private. Cool. And the only point at which that ever becomes public is if a private citizen makes a complaint. But the problem is, you know, if you're being tapped by the security services, you're quite likely not going to know about it. Yeah. So yeah. you're not going to make the complaint. Yeah, so the problem <laughs> is that this is some sort of closed loop between the intelligence agencies. So all this information is circling between these parties and they never come out to yeah. the public and yeah. that's uh, that's what's uh, problematic i think i think also that my 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 sort of bigger issue is kind of one of practicality i watched there was a is it an nos or an rtl documentary sort of that was like about this law and uh, i was completely unswayed by the arguments that the government is making and saying that they they need this expanded access it seemed to me that it's like kind of like lazy policing basically mm. where like rather than like going out and doing some actual investigation they're sort of just like picking up all this data and sort of hoping that maybe there's going to be something in there that they yeah. can use yeah to but they use a, they, they need a suspicion before yeah. they could actually do yeah this. but i mean what yeah sure I yeah, mean, what constitutes a suspicion? What constitutes need, yeah. a suspicion? Yeah. I mean, I suspect that Paul is organizing. Yeah, but the IFD is such a small organization; they can never collect all the data and all the traffic from the Netherlands, and then after that, search for something. That's just impossible. They I cannot mean, I, do this. I don't know that I think that that's true. I mean, I think yeah. that you 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 don't need a whole lot of people to do this. I mean, computers basically do it for you, and you could sort of just like throw in search terminology that it's going to track and kind of like pull out from your the messages and the emails and the kind of data that you're sending and this sort of thing. But I am unconvinced convinced at least personally that like if there is a terrorist living on my street and they they want to investigate like this person mm-hmm. that tapping all of the internet from the street is somehow going to make it better right that there was this argument at least that the law writers were making where they're like you know well people like leave their house and they go to a cafe and and then they negotiate about jihadists in syria or whatever well like sure but they could also go to a cafe in amsterdam and then like you have no geographical like connection with this i was just unconvinced that this seemed like it's gonna do a whole lot of good in terms of actually providing protection. yeah and i think the problem is if, if you give the security services these very wide-ranging powers, they will tend to max them out. And if they are scooping up this enormous amount of information, they haven't got the capacity to sift it intelligently, then you're making for a less efficient, less reliable service. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and I do That's think that true. the point about yeah. the journalists and the sourcing, I mean, it is a thing that, like, I mean, I don't yeah, do a lot of investigative work, but, like, I know that it is a concern for colleagues of mine who do. I mean, it does seem a little, like, it would make me, like, seem a little cautious about, like, having discussions that might, that yeah. the government it might be interested in. Basically, that they can effectively sort of see in your, see in your notebooks almost, yeah. you know, where you keep all kinds of confidential information. Right. You know, for, for very good reasons. Yeah. yeah. And, and, yeah. and I also think that, like, not yeah. right now, I mean, like, I have pretty good faith in this, the government of the Netherlands for the most part it tends to be a, a place mm. that's like fair and, and free and all of these kinds of stuff but you sort of see sometimes like okay you know we just had these elections that happened in Italy and these like really far right anti-immigration parties have come to power and then you sort of wonder like well if, if that's what happens here like what are they going to do to immigrants? Well like, yeah, and that's the other thing of course you know because even if you you trust the Dutch government you, you know that uh, spies from all kinds of various countries are constantly talking to each other right. and they're sharing information so yeah. the information that they've acquired how do you control what happens when it goes over the border? Right if they're using it in collaboration with the US government or the British right. government or we saw this whole business recently where the uh, the Dutch security services were hacking into the into the Russian um, right. state uh, intelligence in Moscow on behalf of the US on the behalf of you the know, US how, yeah. how, how do you police all that yeah. and make sure that you know the information that they, they pick up from your uh, your online activity in the course of seeing if there's a terrorist somewhere further down the street yeah. where does that go yeah, yeah that's another that, that's another point indeed the intelligence services now I mean if they find some intelligence 
intelligence that might be interesting for the UK or the US or whoever, some foreign uh, intelligence, they can just uh, send it to, to the relevant countries. But under this law, they almost have a free pass to collect data from Dutch citizens and send that abroad as well. And the state is there to protect their citizens. Mm -hmm. And how? why should the intelligence agency be allowed to send information from Dutch citizens to other countries. Yeah, no, and if basically, you know, for example, you know, I mean, Turkey is a NATO ally, but Turkey has also had a record recently of uh, being quite oppressive towards, say, you know, people with du dual Dutch-Turkish nationality. Yeah. If the Turkish state comes along and says, you know, we want to know what information you've gathered lately on Mohammed who lives in Rotterdam. Yeah. Well, who's protecting Mohammed there? Right, yeah. yeah. But the other question I need to ask is, is, is a referendum the right way to bring all these concerns to light? Because I kind of feel it isn't. Well, basically. no, it's, it's an advisory referendum. And so yeah. it doesn't, by definition, we talked about this committee that doesn't have any teeth. Well, yeah. this referendum has doesn't no have teeth. any teeth. Yeah. Right. So let's, also, so. yeah, to be clear for the listeners, this referendum is non-binding. So it's, yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't really matter what the referendum says. And I, I, this goes back, I think, to the point that I made last week, which is, is that you can do really sophisticated polling data that oftentimes is like a better representation of what the people want than like yeah. actual elections are. And so like you can see very easily how people feel about this. It's a fairly popular law in the Netherlands like people don't really seem to like this idea mm. the government already knows this so like what this referendum is going to yeah. do doesn't really seem like it's going to make a whole lot of difference no today. indeed and some coalition parties like this the Christian Democrats the CDR have already said that they will just ignore the result right. and the other thing is you know, the referendum is the other point that I made last week is it's a very blunt instrument all you can really do is say yes or no yeah. but most people most campaigners who've objected to this law have said you know bits of it are, are okay and fine and necessary but there are other bits that we're yeah. um, that we're concerned about you can't just pick and choose like that in a referendum. It comes yeah. down to just black and white, yes or no. And that kind of really makes it easy for yeah. someone like Mark Rutter, who wants this referendum, wants law to come in, just to dismiss all objections, you know, in the right. same sweeping move. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, when this law passed under the previous cabinet, it was the favorite day. Christian Union and CDA who voted in favor of the law, but it was D66 who voted against it. Mm. And considering they don't have a very good relationship <laughs> with referendums right now, right. they are again in a very awkward, awkward position. position. Yeah. 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 So we will uh, update our listeners after the elections happen. Yeah, on the twenty first of March. Yeah. yeah. So we'll, we'll probably. I think we. I think we haven't quite decided this yet, but maybe we'll do a local election special on uh, on the Wednesday, that Wednesday evening, or something like that. Like oh, you just decided that, have you? You didn't ask if Paul and I had any other plans. You know? <laughs> no one is surprised. No one that listens <laughs> to this podcast. Oh, is I was going to go up with Paul to to Amsterdam in his taxi and uh, stand outside <laughs> Uber's offices. We, we, we had that pencil. Yeah. I have plans to go see the roasted heron legs. You know, but I'm willing to make sacrifices in my personal <laughs> well, that's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about in the liner notes. You can now send comments, compliments, and abuse by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, you can subscribe to our feed, give the podcast a rating, and share it. My thanks to Molly Quell and Gordon Derek. I'm Paul Peters, and depending on what Molly dictates or not, we will be back next week. <laughs>